Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting or sculpture, with drawing as an integral foundation for the creative production. Each member begins a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expands one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, the New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. The applications for fall 2020 are due January 15th, 2020, which is coming up. Apply online today at nyss.org or schedule a tour to learn more by emailing info at nyss.org. And Sound and Vision is also supported by Golden Artist Colors, making the best paints from acrylics, mediums, Williamsburg oils, core watercolors, and much more. If you would like to support this podcast that brings visits with artists and musicians directly to you, you can now join the Sound and Vision Patreon. If you visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast, you can donate and get mentioned on the pod and even a personal sketch and thank you sent to you. You could also leave a review on iTunes or share the show with a friend. Listeners like you help this podcast stay afloat. As always, thanks for listening and your support. John Plipchuk was born in 1972 in Winnipeg, Canada. He studied at the University of Manitoba School of Art, where he co-founded the collective The Royal Art Lodge in 1996 with fellow artists Michael Dumontier, Marcel Zama, Neil Farber, Drew Langlois, and Adrian Williams. In 1998, he moved to Los Angeles to study at UCLA, where he is currently based. John works in painting, sculpture, installation, and video, and he's exhibited in New York, Dusseldorf, Munster, London, Los Angeles, Cleveland, Paris, San Francisco, Miami, Tokyo, Montreal, Seoul, Guadalajara, and St. Petersburg. His works are in the collections of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in Los Angeles, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Hammer Museum, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Saatchi Collection in London, the Museum of Old and New Art and the Whitney Museum in New York. I caught up with John at Petzl Gallery, where his show opens tonight, if you're listening to this on the day it releases, which is January 9th. The show is called Waiting for the Next Nirvana, and it runs until February 29th at their 18th Street space in Chelsea. We talked about his time in Winnipeg growing up under a tough dad, his Kiss cover band, the Royal Art Lodge, settling into Los Angeles, and much more. Here's our conversation. The relax podcast. It's all good. <laughs> so, uh, what we were talking about? We were talking about getting older. We were talking about getting older and kids. Yeah. yeah. So, they're at that age. I mean, are they are they rebelling a little bit? Not yet. Um, my son has rebelled his entire life. Oh yeah, he's yeah he's always been. I mean, he's a great kid, but he he pushes back. He is always pushed back. That's good, so, right? Fighting spirit, or is it a pain in the ass? Well, <laughs> I don't know because. I, you know, I was terrified of my father and I realize now 
that because I didn't want my kid to be terrified of me, um, I wanted to be his buddy. And so it's cool if you're their buddy when they're two and three years old. Right. But once they're four and they start pushing back, you have to be 1950s dad. But it's too late because you're already their buddy and they don't see you as an authority. I did the same exact thing in my life. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. Because, you know, my, my dad was pretty tough, you know? Oh, yeah. And like, you, you know, I always joke around with my son. I say, you know, if I did that at home, I'd be running for my life. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, rolls his eyes, but I would literally be running from him. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And like you sort of, you, there's a respect and a fear there that I yeah. think. You so know, then you didn't fuck with, you didn't fuck yeah. with that authority. It keeps I, you on the straight and narrow. You I, know? you know, I think about like, so I was probably seven years old. And I, at no point do I ever think that my father abused me because he didn't. Yeah. He was a strict authoritarian. Right. And we're sitting in the car getting ready to go to my Aunt Isabel's house. And my dad is talking about some son of a bitch at work. And he's like, this son of a bitch, this son of a bitch, blah, blah, blah. So we're about to leave. And the wind, my window's rolled down. He's talking through the passenger side to my mother. And I say to him, see you later, you old son of a bitch. <laughs> And he grabbed me by the hair and he pulled me out of the car. Oh my. And I don't know how he simultaneously got my pants down and his belt off and just started whipping my ass in the driveway. Oh my God, you never said that again. No, no, I certainly did not. And to think about actually being that kind of authoritarian to my kids now is completely out of the realm of reality. Right. But on the other hand... My kid says fuck all the time. Oh, really? Oh, Jesus. Like, <laughs> since he was little, he's just like, fuck this, fuck that. As oh, soon my as God. he realized that I'm not going to give him a hard time, I'm oh, like, look, yeah. you need to learn. This is a very special word. And you need to learn when to use it properly. Because if you just say fuck all the time, it loses its its power. Yeah. So you need to be you need to be measured with it and, and make sure you're using it at the right time. Yes. And he's like, okay, okay, I got it. And, and then it's just fuck this, fuck this. Yeah, it's using it like salt and pepper. Yeah. Just garnishing. Yeah. <laughs> That's so. really funny. I had the same experience and I feel like I've just, you know, gone, you go too far the other way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, if dad was a pretty strict, then you just want to make sure that the, the anxiety you had. Right you don't pass that along. Right. But then it can go to the point to where you're just letting someone get away with murder. And you're messing them up in a different way. And then they're probably going to, like I'm seeing this now, they're probably going to pay for that more right. than we are right. paying with our memories of it being strict. <laughs> right. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, I can laugh about getting my ass whooped in the driveway. Oh, yeah, it wasn't fun. It wasn't at fun moment. at the time. That's but, true. Yeah. You know, now when I think about it, it's pretty comical. Yeah. I mean, it's different times. Different times. But this is in Winnipeg. In Winnipeg, yeah. And Manitoba? Been, Manitoba. It would have been 1979. Right. Yeah. And my Canadian knowledge, not so good. Winnipeg is in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's kind of... I I would imagine snowy and cold and remote... But maybe not. I mean, I obviously Winnipeg. I mean, I am a hockey fan, so right. that brings me to some sort of geographic knowledge of different sure. areas of Canada. But I've just never been other than Toronto and or Vancouver. Know, yeah. yeah, no, you know, Winnipeg is in the middle of the continent. Uh, it's in the middle of what was Glacial Lake Agassiz, I think, 
And when that receded, it was like about a 60-mile-wide swath of flat. Like, you can't roll a ball. It's so flat. Yeah. And there's no moderating body of water. So you have a continental climate, and it's freezing in the winter. I can imagine. But, I mean, I think what that ends up doing is making a lot of bands and a lot of art. Yes. And I was definitely into the idea of bands. I wasn't really into the idea of art. But, you know, it found me somehow... Yeah. Um, Blue Collar Town, it's a lot different than it was when I grew up. I guess every place is when you really think about it. But, like, Winnipeg had, because it was a grain hub uh, when stuff would go on the train from the prairies, then from Winnipeg to Thunder Bay into the Great Lakes and out, or to Vancouver and out. Um, Winnipeg was pretty wealthy, but... I don't know. I I don't know my history well enough to know exactly what happened to Winnipeg, but it basically became a blue collar town. Yeah, it was a Boeing plant um, and a couple of other things. But like, my dad worked for the railroad, fixed track layers, and it was always a poor town. And we had a shitty hockey team. Yeah, and I, it's funny because I started watching the Jets again, and I'm super into the Jets now, and I don't miss a game, but I remember in the 80s watching them play and just thinking fuck like why can't you win like why can't you just win like you get right. so close to winning and then you just don't that's not my dad is a pirates fan uh-huh. <laughs> see i i'm uh, that's out of my realm of understanding baseball but um, right. I, I guess it's everywhere that... well we had the penguins so i grew up watching lemieux and yager so it was good right. times that, yeah. and it's not fair because as you know, an American from Pittsburgh, I don't deserve the kind of hockey I got to see, and you deserve the winner. That's not true. I mean, I'm sure a lot of players are coming from Winnipeg. They're all from, well, or, I mean, there are a few, but it was always like some yeah. small town in Saskatchewan yeah. or Manitoba. Right. Yeah. But it's not that like, it's not like that anymore. Right. I mean, they're everywhere. Oh, they're, it's much more, everywhere. well, as with anything, right. you know, the, the, the kind of exposure to it is so right. different. Right. You know, I'm a, I played soccer my whole youth, and I still play. And um, when I was... I think about it now, like the kids who play soccer, my son plays, they watch all these, they can watch any league in the world. You yeah. know? When I was growing up, you, the only thing I saw was Pittsburgh Spirit, which was like an indoor <laughs> soccer team that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> like I never could see what, and now you could kind of see everything. So yeah. It opens up the doors of possibilities. Yeah. It's funny. My dad, uh, my dad came to Canada and I think he came in 1951 or 1952. And, it's like he never left Ukraine. He le- he left. He ran away when he was fifteen, and mm-hmm. he left. And the Second World War broke out, and so he was basically bouncing around Europe for the duration of the Second World War. Ended up in England and working in a canning factory in England somewhere, and then had an uncle who had gotten to Canada and got a job for the railroad. And his uncle said, "I'll get you a job with the railroad, so just move to Canada." Yeah. And he left. He left Ukraine. Like actually left Ukraine when he was fifteen. And you would think that he had never left. So I'm like, can we go watch the Jets play? And he's like, no. Can we go watch the Blue Bombers play football? No. But when the, like the Ukrainian national uh, women's volleyball team came to town, oh, he was there. we went to see that. <laughs> Literally because he could, wouldn't have mattered if it was any sport, but it right. was Ukraine. Do you think that part of that, too, is in essentially it was like forced out? Do you like, know what I mean? Like those aren't you know, hospitable like conditions for leaving a country. Or, oh no, no, no. He you was definitely I mean? like, forced out. I you mean, you got to get out of there. So. Yeah. He had a choice. I mean, his, both of his brothers stayed in Ukraine. Um, but the, the, so he was born in 1924 
1931 or 1932, Stalin started collective farming. And they were right in the middle of that. And basically, his father died when he was nine, I want to say, falling off a grain silo and breaking his neck. Jesus. And then by 33, everyone was starving. So they were like, yeah. I don't know if they were eating each other, but they probably were. Um, I remember him, he never really explained it to me what happened, but he would say that they were so hungry that they would go down to the river and try and catch these eels to eat and they couldn't catch them because they were too slippery and they had no grip because they were so hungry and his mother would tell them to lick their finger and rub their belly button and that made the hunger go away and then by 33 she died of cholera and like pretty much everybody around there was dead yeah so he ended up moving in with his his aunt and uncle and they were like pentecostal christians or something and they would speak in tongues and stuff, and he didn't like that. So he ended up running away. And so, yeah, he was kind of forced out. But When you hear stories like that, you can understand why someone's kind of a tough oh, fuck yeah. person. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like going through things like that, you can harden yeah. a person. <laughs> yeah. We bought, in 2004, we bought the house next door to them in Canada. And uh, I was trying to make a driveway with all this. I got a giant pile of limestone and I'm shoveling. I thought, at no point did I ever think that I was like a fit person, but right. I was much more fit than I am now. Mm-hmm. But I figured that I, if, if I worked hard, I would get stuff done. So I'm going to shovel this pile of gravel. And I had been at that all day long. And my dad comes out and I go, it's five o'clock. I'm going to go in and have supper. And he's like, well, you're not done. And I'm like, this is shitty work. Yeah. This is really shitty work. And he says, you know what I did when I was 17 years old? I was living in Munich, and the only job that I could get uh, after the Americans came through and bombed, there was these three graveyards, and there was all these fresh graves, and the Americans came through and bombed again and blew the graves up, so there was body parts everywhere, and he goes, for two weeks straight, all I did was pick up body parts and pile them up. He goes, that's shitty work. And I go, okay. (laughs) That's shitty work. Yeah, you Yeah, that's fair. Limestone seems fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I imagine, like, that's... I mean, you know, that existence would just make you just a black and white, cut to the chase kind of person. Like something I will never, ever know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's for the best. That's for the best. We don't need to go that deep into the, you know what I mean? Sure. Like those stories. Sure. You know. Yeah. But I mean, I I often think about struggle and how, you know, uh, there, there isn't a lot of struggle in the same way. I feel like at least in my realm of existence. Yeah. You know? No, no, I agree. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's a big question that comes up these days. Is like, you know, younger people just aren't going through, like, right. you know, that you, as a parent, the term curling parents of like, we just like kind of like, I've make, never heard that. You know, it used to be helicopter, now right. it's curling now because it's curling. we kind of like smooth the way for, you know, for our kids to glide <laughs> through effortlessly through right. life, you know, which See, I'm guilty. I would have taken that a little bit differently having curled and, and, um, done a lot of curling activities. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that that was parents that just sat around and drank all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we do when the kid goes to school, right? right. right. <laughs> and then when they come back, we yeah, no, that makes sense. Get it all smoothed out. But yeah, it's like a different. You know, that's kind of like what people think. Well, growing up in Canada, I mean, with that cold weather and those long winters, mm-hmm. inspiring creativity. I imagine. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's what, you know, it's creativity, comedy, people are funny. Yeah. You know, you got to deal with it sure. in, in whatever way. You're kind of a, a product of your environment in some way. Yeah, absolutely. But did it start off as you were young, like drawing and no. just 
doing no. that sort of thing? Or? No, it, it was nothing. There was no art in my life well, music. whatsoever. There was music in my life. So was that was the stereo always on at home and like no. what kind of music? Or I was listening to Iron Maiden a lot when I was when I sort of had my moment. The, the guy who lived across the street from me, him and his brother had a lot of records, and I the first record that I ever got was Queen's "The Game." Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just because I liked another one, Bites of the Dust. Right. I didn't really listen to a whole lot of the rest of the record. Yeah. I wore that song out. And then uh, probably it was in the fourth grade when um, my neighbor had suggested I listen to Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. And so I got pretty heavy into the into that era of metal. Yeah. And it was at that point where I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be that. Right. You know? And... <clears throat> I convinced my mother to buy me a guitar and we hid it from my dad for about three weeks until one day he finally saw this thing and he's like, what's that? And I'm like, it's a guitar. You want to hear me play something? And he's just <laughs> went into a full on rage and he's like, you spent a hundred dollars on a guitar. Like, oh, what no. the, you know, so um, he was so hardened that even music couldn't crack the yeah. shell. I mean, this, that's this, tough. Yeah, I know this guy like his, he, he would always say to me, life is a struggle. Yeah. Life is a struggle. He didn't think that he was going to live as long as he did. He always, I mean, and how would he, how would he think differently? His parents were both dead by the time he was 11. Yeah. You know, he saw so much shit in his life that he couldn't even fathom any kind of pleasure. Right. You know, or any kind of relaxation. I mean, he finally relaxed when he retired, but he still worked all the time. Like he had a giant garden and he was always fixing shit around the house. And yeah, you can't untrain that. You, you know? can't. Yeah. It's like the method of relaxation isn't what we think of when right. you're just so used to like constantly spinning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for me with music, uh, and the funny thing is, is that I never really, I never really got good at it. I was never really good at it. And I realized that the allure of being a rock star was more important to me than actually making songs Mm -hmm. to end up being in that position. Right. And that's something that I realized probably when I was about 24 years old, because I'd been playing in bands for a while and we had a little bit of success, but no real measure of any kind of real success. And I had started at that point I'd been in, in university for three years and I'd failed pretty much every class that I was in. And my friend who was the drummer in the band was trying to get into art school. Mm -hmm. And he had suggested that I take this intro to art B studio class. And if you got a B in the class, they let you in the art school. So I went to the office and I asked them because I had been put on academic probation. If I got into the art school, would they, wipe my record clean of of like basically not kicking me out of school yeah and they're like yeah if you get a b in the class then you can go and come to the art school and you can have basically a fresh start and the funny thing that happened was i had a girlfriend at the time and and she broke up with me and i had all this free time and i had nothing to do but try and make art and i didn't know what i was doing and the best part about it was that i didn't know what i was doing yeah so just messing around there was no end point for me in that there was no like if playing music was to have the goal be a rock star in art there was no there was no rock star. there's no freddie mercury on stage at live aid no (laughs) 
exactly. you know like with the sea of people right it's just like oh, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna do this do stuff yeah. yeah and it made my friends happy when i started making stuff that i liked making you know and so that's how that ended up happening yeah so like, did you take to it once you got you got i assume oh, you got into the I art did. school yeah i got into the art school and that literally all i did yeah. I, I would spend hours at the studio just all the time doing something figuring something out working on stuff trying to make my friends the guys that i really respected making stuff that i was like holy shit these guys are so good at this yeah doing stuff that i thought would impress them right you know and also i realized what 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 i couldn't do lyrically and musically uh expressing any kind of anything yeah. it happened in in art for me somehow right. like specifically with the text in, in a lot of the things that i'd done earlier mm-hmm. and then i would realize that i'm like i'm i'm working through a bunch of stuff that i didn't realize i was actually working through right and it it's more unconscious that. yeah like totally when you're writing whether it's lyrics or like words in a book right it's pretty usually it's pretty specific i mean right. unless it's poetry and you're you know, you're purposefully being abstract about it. I right. mean, you're, you know, you're putting word on a paper. It's, it's literal in a sense. Right. With art, it's just, you can improv in a different way. You right. Know? Right. Yeah. I guess if you were doing free jazz or like avant music or something, yeah. you could, you know, maybe it would be looser if you weren't thinking about, I mean, rock and roll is pretty, you know, rote in a way. I realize know? that now because so around 2005, uh, my friend Tony and Antonio and my friend Paul, who actually played in in the bands that played in in the nineties, um, Tony had this band called Mr. Banjo, and we started. And I was just playing his songs, yeah. you know. And I realized that I actually enjoy playing other people's songs more than trying to play something that I make or even trying to be creative in music. Yeah. And then we ended up. Antonio gets this idea that he wants to make a classic rock cover band. And so he sends us a list of songs, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm not going to play Hot Blooded by Foreigner. Like, that's the worst, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a strange commitment to do and, that. <laughs> and so he's like, just try, just go through. So we went through this list of songs, and and it gave me a totally different perspective on how songs are crafted and yeah. how two guitars playing something can sound like one, but it has two distinct parts to it. And right. it changed the way I think about music, you know? Just really like those annoying... Uh, projects in art class where you have to recreate right you know a van gogh or something out of cut paper right and it's right. like come on but right. then at the end of it you're like holy shit like that's, you see the structure that's how you do it like you put the red next to the green and something right. happens right you know? like like, like the two guitars making art for 20 years and, and realizing layering paint is a good idea <laughs> <laughs> these things take time sometimes they, they really do i'm a late bloomer it's a working process right? yeah. yeah so you did that and you you've had a new appreciation for Totally, yeah. Oh. And like, you know, I can maybe not like some of those songs in real life, but playing them is really fun. Yeah. And then Antonio had this other idea that we make a Kiss cover band. So now we have a Kiss cover band. And how often do you guys play? Once every couple of years. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, you got the, you know, you have the discography. That's true. It's not like you're writing new tracks. No, no. Just get together and bang Although we out. actually thought about that at one point, um, cause I had, because I was sort of studying how they structured their songs mm-hmm. at some point I was like, I can write a kiss song, you know? And I, I kind of put something together, but it wasn't, it wasn't that good. Right. But at one point we had thought like, what if we had a kiss cover band that actually wrote our own kiss songs? Like the new record. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is I feel like because rock and roll like that, like Kiss songs are pretty straightforward. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. rock and roll. You know, blues structure or whatever. Yeah. So you think can write that you know what i mean but so much of music is the alchemy of the time the energy yeah. and the not youth but like where you are in your life or whatever. that's why i feel like a lot of bands at that level when they try to do a new record it's not even good or it doesn't sound like them yeah do you know even though it's them yeah like well, if listen- zz top puts out a record today it's not gonna be <laughs> yeah. you know lagrange or whatever it's not right. gonna have that potency yeah you know, and I think music is kind of like that in a weird way, unless it's the kind of music that's always evolving and changing. Right. But still, the structure of music changes so often. You know what I mean? That like even like if a jazz, like a, a free jazz guy is playing now, jazz, that kind of music is so categorized within right. history that yeah. it's hard to make that new. You know, I like to tell myself, and I don't know if this is actually accurate, but the switch for Kiss. Once, because as I understand, their records never really sold in the beginning, and it was their live shows that attracted people. And then by, uh, you know, Alive comes out, and people started buying that record because they had this sort of moment of like, oh, it's like I'm at a Kiss show, and I can unfold the thing, and I see this big stage and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I like to think that at some point they evolved into making songs specifically for their live show yeah. so that they had moments of like, okay, we're going to hit this chord and that's when the explosion happens. Right. And that sort of thing. And so it's interesting to think about that as far as their evolution. But then at some point that evolution ceases and it just becomes, we're this show band. It's what we do. It's what we do. Yeah. 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 That, that kind of stuff, it's theater in a way for them too. And that, yeah. And that's it. That's like, I was listening to an interview with Brian May talking about, uh, we will rock you. And then when he wrote that, he's like, I just wanted to make that beat something that we, that I knew the crowd could like go along and do it. Yeah. So that interactivity, you know, but, and it worked. Oh yeah. And if you think about that, like it's funny now that I think about, uh, that what popped into my head was, um, Damien Hurst talking about in, in some uh, documentary, I think it was the great contemporary art market bubble. He's uh-huh. talking, about, well, you know, I, I always make things with things that I have lying around. And he's talking about the skull, and he's like, you know, I had money lying around, so I made this diamond <laughs> skull. <laughs> but like, if you think about Brian May's, you know, materials to work with, he he has like you know, 50,000 people in an arena and yeah. that's something that he's going to work with. That's pretty, right. pretty brilliant. Yeah. I, I was never in a band that could think that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely me neither. So. I have a, how is this going to work with the 200 people that buy this record? Yeah. <laughs> if I'm lucky. With the six people, not counting my parents that bought the record. <laughs> <laughs> and the two at the show. Yeah. At the Black Cat in DC. And like, <laughs> huh. yeah. So, well, let's go back to that time because I think we were in school probably the same time. Yeah, I think I'm so. I'm guessing, like yeah. the lineage. And so you, it, the art program there at mm. your school, is that where you met the other guys who were like the Art Lodge guys? Yeah. that's and the, yeah, that basically. was the sort of group of yeah, burgeoning... The, the, the other guys that hung out the studio all the time. I mean, that was basically who was always there. And so, well, my, my um, studio mate and really close friend and uh we lived in the same apartment at penn state yeah Uh, his name's gerald davis he did the yale summer Summer program yeah and he came back and he's like there's these guys that are you know and he brought back this little piece and i don't know if it was yours it might have been 
but it was like a bowl, a little creature in bowling pins or something. Yeah, no, and, I think I kind of remember that. And then he had a cassette of Eyeball Hurt and the Medicine, maybe? Yeah. Eyeball Hurt That was medicine. Michael and Drew's band. Yeah. yeah. and that like was such a good record. Man, we listened to that all the time in the studio. Yeah. yeah. But it was really exciting. Like, it was kind of an abstract... I mean, this is before internet or anything, you know? Yeah. Like, this idea that there's a bunch of guys up in Canada making this really cool kind of, like, DIY. Yeah. And, you know, we're listening to, like, Guided by Voices and, like, sure. Pavement... Like early stuff that's scrappy and made of bits and pieces and just, yeah. I know it felt like a kind of DIY creativity that felt really earnest and was the, really interesting. I, I, I imagine you guys were tapping into that. The thing is with, with that is that, that like we thought we were doing our best, you know, we, we, we were all like-minded and Michael DeMonte was probably the, you know, the, captain of all of that in my opinion because he was like he was the curator he was the archivist he kept everything you know he 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 guided us in a lot of ways like i remember when he brought the first henry darger book in and we all lost our shit we were just like that's incredible you know yeah and we were all just sort of doing we all had bands you know marcel and neil had a couple of bands and they all sort of cross-pollinated and there was no expectation of anything. And right. so you're living in a bit of isolation and in a bit of a bubble, you know, and, and it just gestates. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's funny because I had to do a summer school. I, I, needed, I knew that I had to do summer school. And they had a poster on the on the door of the painting um, office that said Summer School of Art and Music at Yale. Yeah. And I was going to pay 1300 bucks to do summer school in Manitoba. And the Yale Summer School is 700 bucks. And I'm like, oh, I'll just go there. Like, I had no clue that you had to apply or anything like that. And, like, <laughs> that it was hard to get in. Yeah, yeah. You're so, just like, I'll do it. I'll sign I'll me do up. That. That's what I'm going to do. So I said to the painting professor, I'm like, hey, Steve, I think I'm going to go to Yale for the summer. And he's like, okay. Good. <laughs> he's like, is that what you decided? Good, good luck, buddy. <laughs> so, and somehow I, I did. And that, that was kind of what changed my life in a way because. Was it a total different. Because usually those kind of programs, I mean, you're getting people from all over, yeah, and it's pretty diverse in like yeah. the people and the working method and the. It was and it was great. You're just like who the what the what's yeah. all this? I mean, and you're coming from like this collect like this area, and you know, was it kind of eye opening in a way? Oh, completely. Yeah. You know, I remember having conversations with people at this place, and they're like, "Well, what grad school are you going to?" And I'm like, "What? What do you mean, grad school?" <laughs> What, right. do you, what am, what am right. I going to do? And they're like, well, grad school, like you go to grad school, you want to be in New York or LA. And I'm like, uh, I, I never even thought about that. <laughs> and right. so that was when I started in like Dushko, who was oh, almost yeah. like, he was almost like, uh, like a guiding force in that, in, in helping me navigate, like, you know, being a complete, hick noob whatever you want to call it going yeah. to this place for starters i think i was drunk for the entire time sure. i was there why not and i <laughs> paraded around that place like i'm the greatest artist that ever existed because in my mind i was because i didn't know any other artists <laughs> oh yeah. so it wasn't like a defense mechanism oh like- probably was too or you know being a, a lack of confidence or whatever but in a way i had confidence in what i was doing yeah you're doing your thing you know and, and, and well you had a group too it's not like you were 
out in the middle of nowhere by yourself. Like you had a group of creative people that you right. kind of were getting energy from. So right. I'm sure that's oh no, it was great. you know it was so great. And yeah. I you know so many people that went that went there were such great people. And so then I was like I came back from Yale to summer school. And I bought a Yale shirt and I would wear it around everywhere. And finally, my professor's like, you can't wear that around anymore. <laughs> like, okay. well, it was too show-offy. Yeah. <laughs> Such an idiot. And so, uh, but but like Dushko was like, so where do you think you're going to go? And then at that point, Tim Gardner had gotten into Columbia and he was going to Columbia. Yeah. So I thought, well, Dushko's at going to Yale. I'm going to try and go to Yale. And Tim's at Columbia, so it might be easy to transition from Winnipeg to New York. I wanted to go to UCLA because I had a professor who had suggested she'd gone there in the eighties, Sharon Allward. And she was like, there's these great professors there. You should go there. Yeah. And so I had applied there too, thinking that's where I wanted to end up. Right. But, um, didn't really have a choice because I didn't get into Columbia or Yale. Yeah. So, um, that, yeah, the, the, that experience among a bunch, a bunch of other ones like that, where I'm like, how did I end up in this position? Right. Changed everything. Yeah. I mean, it's those little things out of your control or like, you know, you meet someone and they're like, oh, you should check this out. Yeah. And then it, and, and I tell students nowadays, you know, back when we were making those decisions, you would just rely on like some teacher's recommendation. There was no fact checking or like like investigative research really you could do because it's not like I could hop on a plane and go check out UCLA or, you know, and, and it was just... You would just go word of mouth in a way. Yeah. It's kind of like when you bought records. You were like, "This artwork looks cool, right?" Yeah, and that, that, hopefully yeah. it works out. Yeah, and you know the <laughs> funny thing about that is like, not to try and promote my show, but I was thinking about the whole like I, t- I I'm going to try and and rope this in in a nice way instead of sounding like um, you should go see my show. No, everyone should go see your show. Everyone will go see your show. So so. when, when Nevermind came out and I was never a big Nirvana fan. Yeah. uh, Hearing that, I remember the first time I heard it at this bar that I worked at, this guy played the whole record start to finish and the beginning of that record. And we were all just like, holy shit. And I remember going, that's something like I, I liked it. I never super got into Nirvana, but I liked it. And I feel like over the course of the next year, and I think that we probably got Nevermind at least six or eight months after it was released. Like it just filtered in. Finally, we got it. Yeah. And then for the next two years, that gestated and filtered into what, you know, what every band started sounding like Nirvana. But it there was time for it to happen. Right. Just like you don't have a fact checking thing you saw a cool album cover and you heard this music and it started seeping into your life and then it became something bigger in your life whereas now it's like funny cat video gets on the internet and then everyone's like oh i have a funny cat video too and so there's ten thousand of them so that first one isn't quite as special as it could have been right and i feel like that's something that that's changed from then to now and that's why I titled this show Waiting for the Next Nirvana, because I'm like waiting for that to sort of happen again. But I don't right. know if it can. Yeah, maybe it's just maybe permanently it's too late, changed you know? in a way. And maybe that's part of this turning into old codger, you know? Like, yeah. W- wondering why I don't want my kids to be YouTube people, you know, <laughs> right. and, and all that. Because I want I want things to to grow organically for a while and then see what happens. Yeah, you know? I think there's a different speed to yeah. everything. Yeah. 
but maybe that it transmutes into like as opposed to it being this slow bubbling thing that comes up and then it just takes over right like i remember when you know that video for smells like teen spirit hit mtv it felt like that and then the pearl jam alive was within like two weeks or something yeah and they just played the shit out of those and i mean there was your life before then whether you were really into that music or not you know because i was really into indie rock so it seemed a little different than what i was into but but there was my life before and after it you know what i mean it was just it was that big of a thing but maybe now it's like that funny gif that's online that you share and then (laughs) And it's the sort of communal aspect of everyone finally, right? Like Baby Yoda, you know, like when right, everyone's right. just like, "This is the most amazing thing." Maybe it's more collective in a but, sense. But I wonder, like, you know, in ten years, are people going to still be going, you know, Baby Yoda? Probably That's not. Still great. Probably not. Probably not even in a year. Yeah. You know, whereas you have, and and I don't know. I feel like with pop culture, I have not been in the loop that well Mm -hmm. and so i don't really know what's cool anymore and i don't know what what has any kind of longevity anymore like i know that if i listen to certain records they sound as good as they did when i first heard them right but i wonder if that exists now because there's such there's so so much faster of a turnover they're just not even records anymore they just really they're just singles. singles and you know what i i read this book called rockonomics and they were talking about how you get paid for the first 30 seconds of a stream, like it has to right. stream for at least 30 seconds. Yeah, you don't get paid so if they, someone just samples They front load the songs with everything that's good in the beginning of the songs. Even songs are being written differently. That's crazy, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? It I is. mean, I noticed, and I don't know if, if I'm just imagining this myself, but I've noticed a lot of artworks that I've seen in galleries in L.A. that are painted with flat paint because it photographs better oh yeah or mirrors we've gone to art fairs and you see a lot of mirrored pieces (laughs) although you front-loaded that exhibit that piece in the front is really nice oh thanks (laughs) yeah yeah that was what i was you enter with a bang (laughs) yeah (laughs) we had it in the middle in the in the bigger space um and it just made more sense in the smaller space it seems to be more anthropomorphic and kind of yeah commanding yeah whereas maybe in the bigger space it just becomes like an image yeah, something. I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, people will have to come see it. They can come and see it. Although we can use that for the like the picture that we see sure. around. So. Yeah, I I'm need sure. to finish it first, so. Well, yeah, yeah. Details, details. <laughs> waiting for a toilet tank lid. <laughs> so with the music and stuff and the art, I mean, you got had a foundation, you were playing some music, mm-hmm. and then when you went to L.A., was it a total different, I mean, did you know a lot of people? No. I mean, that's a big change. That was a big change. And I remember driving down, uh, you knew Austin, right? Austin, Austin. Lynch? Remember I didn't, him? no. You never knew him? Okay, because he was, he was a Yale guy and he, was, uh, he wasn't an art, but he was friends with Dushko. That's how I, that was the first oh, person I lived I do with. Know. Oh, wait, maybe I do. My memory is bad. I mean, Dushko, we played music together. Right. You know, and, and right. I still to this day know Dushko. But yeah, um, I'm sure I've. I know him. You probably cross paths. Yeah. Um, and Sorry, so Austin, had, if you're like, what the f- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dude, you can't remember. Sorry. Okay. Um, I remember when I got to LA, we were staying at a place in Santa Monica for four days, and then we were moving into our apartment that he had gotten. And I hadn't seen it yet. And I was coming from Winnipeg, and I was coming from family members saying, 
you know, as soon as you get to LA, you're going to get killed because it's a horrible, scary place. I thought you were going to say you're going to get tan. (laughs) No, it was funny. There's this, there's this, this disconnection between what, and I mean, granted that was four years after when were the riots? 92. Oh yeah. So that was six years after the riots and gangster rap is hitting and all that stuff was happening. And so my family's perception of what LA was, was either Beverly Hills or Compton. Or Compton yeah. You know, well, and, that was the media. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. It was either palm trees and tan in right. Hollywood or it was, you know, South Central or right. something. And, and I had no frame of reference as to what it was going to be like because when I went to go see UCLA before I went there, I spent most of my time in Westwood and then Rob Tom took me up to Santa Barbara. So mm-hmm. I was just like, this is all awesome. Yeah. You know, so. Austin says, why don't you go look at the apartment? And so I, I had rented a car and I started driving to, you know, drove through, through, uh, Larchmont village. And we finally, I finally got closer to Koreatown mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I started seeing bars on the windows yeah. and I started crying. <laughs> like, I literally <laughs> cried from, from about, uh, Western on Beverly and Western to our apartment on Kenmore and Beverly and then all the way back to Santa Monica, I was just crying my eyes. I'm like, I made a fucking mistake. You're like, they this were right. Bad. This I'm is dead. so bad, <laughs> you know. And I think it took me about a month before I was like, no, this is where I need to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not bad. A month. No, it it's wasn't not like bad. you had a rough year. No, but I also I think that I was ready for that. Yeah, you know, Change. I was ready to be there. And the funny thing is, is that I probably would have lived in my parents' basement until I was forty or till they died. You know. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I, I made my life in L.A., and that's the way it is. So Now, is the prospect of ever moving to a non-climate-controlled climate some a possibility? Have you adapted fully to that kind of yeah. ecosphere? We lived in Canada from 2006 to 2009. Oh, um, wow. But I kept my studio in L.A., so I was commuting back and forth. Yeah. And my mother had died in 2005, and my dad was living by himself. Oh, so you're taking and, care of him? Well, no. We were, that was the idea. The funny part about it is, again, my dad and his ways were, uh, you know, we had been trying to buy a house in L.A. and, and you know, we're pre- basically priced out of any, any possibility of buying a house. Yeah. So we go to Winnipeg and, you know, we see this house that's like 5,000 square feet and it has like almost an acre of land on the river in the middle of the city and we're like, that's only $450,000. Yeah. We should buy that house. Like, no idea of what it's like to live in a big house. So I buy this house. And my dad says, and my wife was pregnant at the time. And uh, we didn't want to tell him until we were back and moved in. And so my dad says to me, right right before we're going back to L.A. to come bring our stuff back, he goes, you know, if I knew you guys were going to have a kid, I'd give you half my money. And I'm like, I don't want your money. And he's like, but I would, I would do that for you, you know, because you can't afford this house. And I'm like, you know, actually, I can't afford this house because, like, that much house at that time in Winnipeg was like ridiculous. Yes, yeah, right. Not the most expensive thing, but it was up there. Yeah, it's all relative. It's all relative. You could still buy like a three bedroom house for eighty grand at the time. Yeah, you know. So <laughs> we come back, and and my wife's not showing yet, but we tell my dad. We're, you know, you're going to have a grandson. Yeah. And he's like, okay. And he just like would not come over. He would not hang out. He thought we were trying to grift him out of half of his money. 
<laughs> so it wasn't until she started showing that he actually believed but like for a good like two months that's so funny he'd be like no i can't come over i'm, bu- I'm busy you yeah. know and we had suggested that he come and live with us and he was like no nah, i don't think so <laughs> he thought he was going to be bank of dad yeah yeah, yeah. supporting <laughs> yeah it was pretty funny so i mean were you there for three years and then basically two and a half years he died in 2008 Mm -hmm. um and and i realized because i was going back and forth so much that i couldn't i couldn't tolerate that like that's the worst commute ever yeah it's not like a commute ever but a bad one well it's not easy it's not easy and i was never home you know i think i i was gone i mean i was in la 13 times in 2008 and in New York a couple of times, in Europe a few times. So yeah. it was like I was constantly gone. Right. And I missed L.A. Like I missed calling your friends up that afternoon and saying, what are you doing for dinner? Let's have dinner. Yeah. Instead of, and this is absolutely not a negative slight against Winnipeg, but there's a lot more planning that goes into having a lifestyle there, you know, especially right. in the winter when you have a little kid and you're like, Okay, I gotta pack my kid up, start the car, run it for fifteen minutes, and then go, and then do that over again when you leave where you're going to. And yeah. it, there was just such an ease to life in L.A. that I perceived rather than felt like I existed in Winnipeg. Right. You know? It's funny because you think immediately the further away from the city, the easier everything is, but it's not no. the case. No, I don't like there's think so. a, lot, and a lot of times when. You know, parents or like grandparents, and they get older. Moving to a city is easier because you have like the doctors is there. You know, right, the stores there. right down the street. You don't have to shovel out the driveway or whatever. Right. You know, yeah. And that's why people move to Florida, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can, yeah. everything's close and the weather's nice, and you don't have to deal with like slipping on ice and breaking your I back. And think that like you know the the idea at least was we're going to have winter again. This is going to be great. And, and I had completely erased from my memory, my absolute hate of winter. Like I remember <laughs> right. walking to school, we used to call it tinfoil pants where you didn't want to go. So probably in the third grade, my parents are like, you need to put on long underwear. And I'm like, I don't want to wear long underwear. They put on long underwear. So I put on long underwear, but for some reason failed to put underwear on. <laughs> And so I went to school that day, and we were having phys ed. Oh, no. And so <laughs> I'm like, and this is, you know, t- 10 years later was the coolest thing ever. But I get to phys ed. I've got short shorts, and I realize I'm wearing long underwear, but I don't have any underwear on. So if I take off my long underwear, everyone's going to see my dink. Yeah. Right? Full so, show. I, so I didn't. <laughs> so I put my shorts on over my long underwear. You were ahead of your time. I was ahead of my time. You go to the gym today, it. and that's like all the people were wearing this. Right. But I took so much shit for that yeah. at school. You know, it was they were relentless about that. Isn't it funny? Like the little things that can oh, just yeah. put you in that doghouse for oh, just ri- keep on. Ridiculous. You. Like, kids you know? are brutal. So then <clears throat> I'm like, there is no way I'm wearing long underwear again. Yeah. You know? But you walk the better part of a mile to school with just jeans on in minus 30 weather. Yeah. And your legs feel like your pants are made of tinfoil. Minus 30. Yeah. Celsius. I don't know what that would be in Fahrenheit, but they were regularly like basically from, you know, December until the end of February. It was minus 30. That kind of when a wind blows, your your tears freeze, your eyelids. Yeah. Yeah. They would have warnings like, 
uh, wind chill warnings that right. exposed skin would freeze in under a minute. It's balaclava time. Yeah. But we would still walk to school, you know. That made you tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then I moved back and I'm like, oh, winter's going to be wonderful. Right. <laughs> like, I, I think I was there for about two days. And yeah. I was like, fuck, <laughs> this sucks. is bullshit. Yeah. Because you know? not only is it uncomfortable, but it's also like you're saying, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more work. You got to you know? and then right, like, right when we got there, you know, we would pack the kids into the, at least the the one kid into, uh, at the time, into their snowsuit and strap them into their car seat. And then there was like this big thing on the news about how you're not supposed to put your kid in the snowsuit in the car seat because they squirt out of the snowsuit if you get into an accident. Oh, jeez. And I'm like, shit. That's just another layer of pain in the ass. (laughs) Yeah. Not to turn this into a dad cast, but I mean, winters suck for little kids because getting them into that stuff. I mean, we've all seen Christmas Story. You know, it's like, they're just, it's just too much. Winter sucks for for parents of little kids. I don't think that little kids actually give two hoots about it. Oh, they love it. They They could be out there with no snowsuit and they'll freeze and they, you know, it's fun. Yeah. But for us, it's a real. Yeah pain in the ass yeah. and then spring and summer comes and you're like thank god yeah shorts and a t-shirt out yeah. the door but then it's a sunblock right and, <laughs> and mosquitoes <laughs> yeah, exactly so in la did the work change a lot or how did how did yeah. the exposure to the other artists and the faculty and all that in the environment um, change it you know it's funny because the air quality is i would say in the last 20 years gotten a lot better in la yeah but when i moved to la I would say for the first couple of months, I didn't even realize there were, I knew there were mountains, but I never saw them. It's just so hazy. It was just hazy and smoggy. And, and the interesting thing to me was how similar that sky was to Winnipeg. as having oh, yeah. this big, wide open sky. Yeah. And so it didn't feel like that much of a transition between what I was used to looking at outside and to what I was experiencing outside there, other than like the climate was warmer. Right. You know, and I was lucky enough to um to have met some people very early on um when I was in grad school who helped helped everything I mean yeah. Frances Stark I met her I gave her some drawings cuz I was just excited that she liked them mm-hmm. um and then she you know and when Laura Owens was doing her talk at UCLA Frances brought Laura over and I gave her some drawings and then when Pay White came and did a talk. Francis brought Pay over, and then Pay brought Steve Hansen over, who was China Art Objects, and they had just opened. Um, and so I was very early on thrust into this group of people who had been in the LA art scene, like for years. Yeah, and I I met you know all these people. I I met Jorge Pardo, and all these people. So it was like I went from one group of friends in Winnipeg. To having within probably six or seven months having a whole new group of friends, and it was a similar situation to where I was always trying to impress Michael Demontieri, Adrian Williams. To I was then trying to impress Francis and Steve and Pay and Laura. Yeah, you know, so pretty weird how that all happens. Yeah, and then was the word like what were you making at that time? So <clears throat> um, I had. So in undergrad, I was making these big oil paintings. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was like, I'd kind of gone through that. I went through an abstract phase and I went through this big sort of gloopy oil painting phase. And then when I stumbled on this scrappy art stuff, um, I felt like 
I was, I was saying what I wanted to say in a lot more easy way and not having to think about it and just doing it. Yeah. So when I got to UCLA, I ended up just spending most of my time making drawings at first and just, you know, like you were saying earlier about the person who had the circumference of, of materials. Uh, yeah. I had the same thing. I would always get a carpet, put a carpet in my studio, lay on the floor and make drawings and whatever I could reach, I could use, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so that's what I was doing. And eventually had some encouragement from professors to try and make paintings. Mm-hmm. So I started making paintings. They always do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, why not? I yeah. Mean, yeah. Push yourself out of your comfort right. zone. So that's, that's sort of what I was making. I tried to make sculptures, but never really, never really did very well with that. Um, Which is funny because your work is so sculptural. Well, I had a moment, and this yeah. moment was so I did. Uh, so I did one show at China Art Objects in 1999, and then I did a, a show here at Petzl on the 22nd Street. I believe it was in 2001. Was my first solo show here, and I did that show, and I'm like, well, I'm a painter now. Yeah. So everybody likes my paintings. I'm a painter, so that's what I do. I make paintings. So in 2002, Giovanni Intra, one of the guys who started China Art Objects, who sadly is not with us anymore, like later that year, uh, I did a show at China Art Objects, and I made these paintings. And Giovanni was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, bust. I don't, li- I don't like them. I don't like them. And I was bummed out. And then Friedrich came to town because Keith Edemeyer and Farrah Fawcett were having this show uh, at LACMA mm-hmm. of Keith and, and Farrah's sculptures together. And Frieder came to the studio, and I had started making paintings for this show. And I'm like, well, because I'm a painter. People like my paintings, yeah. so I'm a painter. <laughs> and Frieder comes in, and he just looks around, and he's just like, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> and he just like, I got so upset. I was like, fuck that guy. He says to me, you know, it's not what you make, it's why you make it. And like to this day, that resonates with me the way he said it. At the moment, I was just like, fuck that guy. Yeah. You know, what, what, like, come on. And I was so frustrated by it. And I'm going to this after party at the Standard Hotel, getting completely shit faced, telling Keith Edemeyer I thought he was the greatest living sculptor, telling Farrah Fawcett I didn't feel any art in her hands, which I kind of regret. <laughs> Um, <laughs> promptly like face planting and like getting carried home <laughs> the next morning as uh, it often happened regardless of the amount of booze I swilled the night before I'd be at the studio at 7 in the morning mm-hmm. and I'm listening to the Scorpions and I'm looking I had been trying to fix this sock and I had a light my dad showed me how to stick a light bulb in a sock and then you can sew the sock back oh, together yeah. So I'm trying to fix this sock, and the sock's laying on, on my desk with this light bulb in it. And it looked like a head, and it looked like a body. And I'm like, you know what? If if Friedrich thinks that these paintings aren't good, then I'm going to just do the absolute wrong thing, and I'm going to make sculptures. And I don't know how to make a sculpture. So I oh, up- thinking that he would see those and say, oh, no, no, painting's what you yeah. need to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll and, show him. Yeah, I'll show him. I'm going to make the worst thing ever, you know? <laughs> And the funny thing is that it was it was pretty good, yeah. you know. And 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 so that's what pushed me into those sculptures. God, um, don't you hate when they're right? Oh, they're always right, you know. <laughs> I, the, the funny part is, is that I, I you know, I'm almost 50, I'm 47 years old, and I've come to this point in my life where I realize that 
the more I think about stuff, yeah. the more I think about doing the right thing and think about how something goes from point A to point B, mm-hmm. it's always not. It, I can't think about it. I'm too dumb. I'm just too dumb. Well, maybe your your sort of creative potency is in that sort of initial moment of just reacting or you know what I mean? Yeah, Unless like in reflecting. Some people's work is just the reflection. You know what I mean? Right. It's like the doing something and then, then what happens right. in relation to that, you know? It's pure subconscious for me. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's just important to understand your own kind right. of like working method, but sometimes it does, people from the outside can see it. Right. You know, when yeah. when you're pushing for these other reasons. Yeah. And they can just come in and say, like, no, this is That's this it. is the the essence here. What yeah. are you doing with all this stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, that's that can be really valuable. And yeah. to be totally honest, and I normally don't talk a lot about dealers and stuff, but like that's like kind of a unicorn to find that. Oh, I think. Yeah. I don't Absolutely. think that's normally. Yeah. The case. No, and certainly, I, you know, it's funny because when when I started. I like I told you about the painting, you know, watching Friedrich install this stuff and yeah. saying an inch down and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And then he was right. You know, a lot of the way I approached installing work when I was a part of Grice Bench was mm-hmm. thinking about how everything flowed together and thinking about not not necessarily directly what would Friedrich do in this situation, but like, how does this make art the best thing that you can see at this time yeah you know hanging things low hanging things high spacing i think i was trying to explain this this the way we installed this roger white show where it was almost like a phrase i don't know if that makes any sense but like the way the paintings hung on the wall was almost like looking at at music or something where it had a cadence to it or i had a phrasing to it and i i yeah I love that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, I guess it it might not be intuitive, but like as you as you hang, I, I it's kind of like a live show or something. You know, yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. as you start to understand the crowd and your volume knobs and like mm-hmm. what parts of the songs, the dynamics, and you, you just kind of like fine tune it over time. I yeah, think. yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something to be said. That's for me. That's where I always get worried because I feel like we do have that kind of culture of like next whatever's next right. you know moving through things right if you never give anything and i'm not just saying that because i'm getting older right <laughs> if you never get let anything take time to steep and like to right. to to sort of like work through those ideas and you're you're never getting that right. deeper look i think right yeah and you can't you need to spend time with things you really do yeah yeah well so and you've been so your first show at petzl was 2001 right yeah. so that's I mean, it's been a while. It's been almost... Well, I mean, the first show at China Art Objects was in 99, so... Yeah. It's been 21 years of this. It's but funny. I mean, but and you've been showing with the one place here for a long time. And right. I think that's a rarity yeah. these days. It's yeah. like a uh, Derek Jeter or something. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. wait, what's the hockey equivalent? Who played in one team their entire career? Uh, you know what? I wouldn't know. Yeah, I don't think it... But it's, it's rare, right? It's very rare. Yeah. 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 So something to be said for that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny when you think about like when, when you know somebody for a long time, how you can just implicitly trust them. Yeah. And you just go, okay, whatever. It's like my wife. Yeah. 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 And she says it, I'm like, she's probably right. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing too. My wife is the same way when she's like, 
you know what? You don't have enough dicks in your work lately. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) you missed them, huh? (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. It was funny. It was funny back then. Not funny now. I think that's when you know you met the right person. Yeah, when that, like, yeah. that resonates. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so. that's so you. Do you have well? Your studio now is closer, right? Yeah. I mean, do your kids? Are they ever coming to the studio and checking out what you do? No, mine not neither. Really. I mean, he doesn't really come. They're, I remember they're not uh, that interested, right? It's no. kind of like what dad does is what dad. Yeah. Unless you have a show, I'm sure they enjoy going to no, the. Not even that. Oh, they not don't so much. No, you know it's funny. I remember. Uh, taking my son to the studio one day and he was probably five and he goes, did you make that all by yourself? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, good for you, dad. Oh, that's nice. And I'm like, thanks buddy. That felt like my nuts just shrunk. <laughs> um, my daughter, on the other hand, who is, has a lot more interest in, in artistic things. I enjoyed when we had uh, some of Joyce's, Joyce Pensado's work at mm-hmm. Grice Bench I had it in my studio because something had to be repaired. And so for, I want to say like three weeks, I had this giant Joyce drawing in the studio. And so Sylvia would come with me to the studio and she would make copies of the drawing because she loved it so much. Oh, that's cool. You know, that, that was, that was great, but really they, they don't have a whole lot of interest in, in, in going to the studio. But that said, my daughter will make something and she'll be like, Hey, why don't you get one of your art dealers to sell this? And I'm like, <laughs> business wise, they're business savvy. Business wise, they're yeah, savvy. Yeah. I'm like, well, listen, sweetheart, um, that's kids' art. And she goes, what's the difference? And I'm like, well, it's, I don't know what the difference is. I, you know, on one hand, it's really good, but on the other hand, you know, you need to grow up a little bit more before it really makes sense. And she's like, why are you being such a jerk? Just take it to the gallery and sell it. <laughs> like. It's funny because the irony is a lot of times as we get older and working, we try to revert back to the stuff we were making as a kid because that's the the sort of unfettered. Did you ever see that movie, uh, Six Degrees of Separation? No. It was a long time ago. But it's about like uh, art collectors and they're trying Mm -hmm. to flip work. But the one is talking about, I think they were in second grade maybe. Mm -hmm. And they're saying like, look at all these second graders. It's like in third grade, they're too Mm self-conscious. In first, they're just like you know throwing up on the page or whatever right but second grade is like i think it's second grade with this moment is yeah. like a moment where it's just the perfect balance yeah and they're like all picassos you know? right and yeah. i think we do often like try to get back to those times where we're not overthinking or yeah you know there's that kind of unbridled enthusiasm that you know reality careers and in, in the real world can crush yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean uh, honestly like this part of the the joy of having moved studios and being closer is that I've been spending a lot more time in the studio. Uh, I've been going, I basically for a, almost five years, kind of, unless I had a deadline, stopped going to the studio at night, yeah. you know? And so now, you know, I get there at 7.30 or 8.30 and work for a few hours and then go home and then work, go back and work for a few hours. And I realize that I'm like fully in this moment of, like I can sit around there and just stare at the wall for two hours yeah. and I don't have to worry about my commute and I can, you know, have that moment of like, I don't actually know what I'm doing, but this is pretty fun to see it happen. And right. like it's childlike almost. It's so important, right? Really That's important. come up so many times when I talk to people like the importance of just staring at a wall yeah. or staring into space. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like how you need that zone out time. Totally. And nowadays it's so hard to get that time because yeah. we're 
I mean, well, you said that you don't even have a computer, which is good. I yeah. mean, but you know, with phones, phones still a problem or <laughs> constantly trying to, you know, there was that, I don't, I don't know how much of it's urban legend, but there was, I think there was a study done where they say that whenever you get a text or like when you go to your phone to do something, right. You're sort of deep concentration that like when you're in the studio writing a song or writing, sure. It takes like 20 minutes or something to get fully to get back, back in yeah. to like that, that mode of yeah. like raw, like deep creative mode. Flow mode. Yeah. Flow yeah. mode. And like, how do we do that now with all this stuff? Yeah, you know? no, I agree. I mean, that was the thing as far, you know, I was saying that it would take an hour, sometimes an hour and 15 minutes to get to the studio, so it's two and a half hours wasted driving. But you sit in a car for an hour and 15 minutes and you get to the studio and you're like, I can't fucking work right now. I've got to, you know, look at Instagram to defrag or whatever. Right. And then that just makes, <laughs> makes it worse. Yeah, you, you know? get lost in that rabbit you hole. get lost in that rabbit hole. You check CNN, see what our president's doing. And then and you're he, depressed. Yeah. And you're- <laughs> You go for a walk, and yeah. next thing you know, the day's over. Right. <laughs> right, and you didn't really get anything done. Yeah, I do, I have to say that when I do drive to teach, mm-hmm. that longer drive, like I'll do audiobooks or podcasts and music, yeah. but I do find that some of that time to think is really nice, because yeah. when you're driving, you're just, you can't be bothered. You See, know what I'm saying? you're driving at what speed? That's the difference. Like 65, 70. See that to me that there's no problem with that. Oh, you yeah, can traffic. listen to an audiobook, audiobook and drive at 60 miles an hour. You are moving. That's true. But yeah. start and stop. Oof, it's a whole different beast. That is brutal. It is. That's brutal. why the rage is there. I think Yeah. there's yeah. not as much highway rage. It's really like bumper yeah. to bumper. It's rage. bumper to bumper. Yeah. Cause you just want to get yeah. going. I remember I switched what I ended up trying to do to avoid having to drive because for some reason, Mondays always felt like it was the worst yeah. uh, of the days of the commute that I decided what I'm going to do is try and keep gallery hours and just, you know, go to work on, on Saturday and Sunday and then stay uh, home on Monday yeah. to just avoid that one day. So I only had four days of shit commute. And I remember the first time that it was going on a Sunday and I get onto the 110 freeway and for whatever reason, there was an accident. And I'm like, <laughs> today... <laughs> This is only supposed to take me 35 minutes. Right. It took me like an hour and a half. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you made a good move, I think, on the For the, the most part, it was, yeah. No. Oh, that, absolutely. Absolutely. That was the best thing. Yeah. Take uh, that time over, you know, the extra space, like yeah. any day of the week, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's like my studio here is maybe five minutes from my apartment. That's amazing. So it's just, you know, yeah. and I don't, I think part of it is, you know, having kids, having a family. It's sure. like, I don't do the night thing like yeah. I used to do. Yeah. Before then, it was just like I could work all night. Yeah. It didn't matter. Yeah. Wake up whenever I wake up and work all day. Yeah. Now it's more regimented, the schedule. Sure. But still, like if I do want to pop over there, it's nice. You can do it. I can do it, yeah. you know? And yeah. like the, I like the early morning thing now. I wake up really early to yeah. get my kids to school. Yeah. So, you know, I just get to the studio early and I feel like I have more energy then. It's just like a nice... I've always felt that way about the morning. Yeah. You know, I was never much of a night person as you far as... You get tired, you know, yeah. and it's hard to work. And I feel like the morning, for the most part, for me... And that was also partly probably my dad, you know, I remember him waking me up at seven in the morning. Bugle call. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. He grabbed me by the foot. Boy, get up. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And he's like, go wash your car. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat breakfast and then I'll go wash my car. So I'd get up and I'd wash my face and I'd go and eat breakfast and I'd go outside and he's putting the pail away because he had just washed my oh, car. My dad, yeah. I think we had a similar father. Uh, and my I'd dad go, would do that too. Why, why'd you do that? And he'd be like, you go, you're a shit of a man. 
Well, my dad didn't go that far. He'd just be like, you're too slow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I wanted it done, so i do it. He'd be like, take out the garbage before eight tonight, you know? Yeah. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock, he's taking it out. I'm like, what are you doing? He's yeah. like, well, I didn't want the garbage sitting around. Someone's got to do it. I was yeah. like, yeah, you told me before eight. He's like, yeah, I yeah. get it. Yeah. It'd drive you crazy. Oh, it drove me nuts. But I think it made me, in a way, like when I have to do something. Yeah. I get I I feel antsy like if I don't if you finish don't do it, it yeah yeah no, like, I know that exactly if yeah. I have a painting and it's half done mm-hmm. I I feel unsettled until yeah. that thing's finished yeah no, thank I, God I'm not like a photorealist it takes me like two <laughs> yeah. years to make a painting yeah I think my whole life would be like yeah. frustration yeah yeah no I constantly have that in the back of my head you're a shit of a man jeez <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks dad so, yeah it's all good well, in the studio do you do you listen to, to rock and roll yeah I mean is that the I, you know what I tend playlist? to listen to the same in some cases just the same song over and over again see a lot of people I talk to do that yeah they'll get the one song on repeat because it puts them in like a flow almost state. like a trance flow state yeah flow state yeah that's what it is is that a yoga term uh, I'm not sure if it's a yoga term I had understood it because when I was making these other paintings a couple of years ago, um, what I had done was I, I put Katy Perry firework on repeat in the studio to psych myself up to like, go, oh, you know, you're worth it. You're a firework. You know, yeah. you're going to do something special. Inspirational sound. Inspirational. So, and I'm listening to this song over and over and over again. And about half an hour in, you know, maybe two hours of working, and then I would stop and look at what I did. And I'm like, how did I even do that? I didn't realize I did that. And... I would look up, um, I don't even know how I found this, but as I understand, there's a thing called binaural beats where your brain is constantly trying to follow patterns in the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly to how ticking clocks, you don't hear um, because the constant sound becomes a default silence. Yeah. And so as I understand, what your brain will do is try and follow a pattern and once it follows that pattern, it gets you into almost like a trance type thing. Right. I don't think it's an actual trance, but it's like that. Like what your brain is focused on can be focused on something more specifically. Right. And I ended up reading something about athletes and how, you know, some person surfs a 30-foot wave and, and the other person says, how, the, how did you even do that? And they go, I, I don't know. I just did it. Yeah. So they get into this what they I guess call flow state where your subconscious and your muscle memory takes over what you're doing and you just do it. Yeah. You don't have to think about it. You just do it. You've done it so many times that you just do it. Sixty five on the highway is probably some sort of flow it state. Probably is because you're flying. Yeah. But you're and just all doing of the it. things that pass you, your your mind is is cataloging them and going, Okay, well, there's another street sign, there's another street sign or what whatever and so I think that that's, um, I don't even know what, how did I get on that? We're just talking about flow state and like the, right. the creative, like how that inspires some sort of creative right. production in a way. And I think that that, for me, that was a way of not overthinking anything that I did. So you'd like put on one song. One song, yeah. Jailbreak by Thin Lizzy today. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever do that? Do you ever say like today's going to be, you today's know, gonna heartbreaker? Be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was funny because it was often a Katy Perry and then uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, See, that's leaning a little more like super pop, pop that I, that I would figure. But you know, the funny thing is, is that like the way they have those some of those songs timed and where where it ends. Yeah, the beat doesn't really stop. Oh, it's like a so perfect. if it's on repeat, it just keeps going. Yeah. Um, 
but then recently I've been listening to uh, there was a Winnipeg band called the Bonaduchis mm-hmm. that um, made a couple of records in the late '90s. One of them was the Democracy of Sleep. Um, that is like probably one of my favorite things ever. Listening to that, There's, the Bonaduchis. Yeah, Doug Doug McLean is he was so as far as as far as Winnipeg bands, Eyeball Hurt in the Medicine and mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. So Michael Demontier was in a band. They were, they lived down my street called the garage people. Mm-hmm. And that was the, in my opinion at the time, the greatest band that ever existed. And Doug wrote a lot of those songs and they were, you know, funny, some funny songs, some sort of more serious songs, but for the most part, pretty lighthearted. And when he started making um, Bonaduce's records, and then he went and he started another band called the Paperbacks, um, his the way he used his words was always so important to me and yeah. beautiful to me. And like I would listen to those records, and a lot of the text that I wrote in the early work that I did would be derived from listening to those records, writing something down, and then going back and seeing whether I was actually plagiarizing Doug or not. Right. And making sure that I wasn't. And but like just just the way words fit together, the way he could just throw this this feeling of something out there in something really simple. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um so that's it's funny because I hadn't really listened to the Bonaduchis in years and then I started listening to that in the paperbacks again, sort of on repeat. So it was more full full albums right. again. So and that's where you listened to the, some of that while you were doing this work? Yeah, pretty much that. And actually Feist's record, Pleasure. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. That is like, I I don't even know how to explain how good I think that is. You know, I don't even know how I fell upon that either. I think that I was probably playing another song for my daughter and noticed that she had a new record out and started listening to that and like wow that is magical yeah yeah beautiful that's great i mean i was just picturing nothing but you know heavy metal yeah iron maiden and (laughs) you know dawkin dawkin striper (laughs) (laughs) no remember striper oh yeah of course i saw them with uh cinderella wow uh, and White Snake, I think. Wow! And they, you know, they threw out Bibles. It was amazing. Yeah, no, they were Christian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that that's amazing. I never saw Striper. I never saw and I never saw Cinderella. I saw White Snake. So did they have Tony Katane on the top of a car when you saw? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Remember that video was like, yeah. Oh man, there was. Maybe I did see Cinderella because Cinderella and White Snake were touring. They like, did tour, so maybe I did. see I think that. it was called the Shake Me Tour. Okay, you know what? I I think I I might have seen. That. And they were playing arenas. Yeah, Winnipeg you know? Arena. I and like saw. Bon Jovi, like they were all Poison. Yeah, I saw Bon Jovi open for Judas Priest at the Winnipeg Arena. Nice. Right before Slippery When Wet came out, and allegedly they played "You Give Love a Bad Name" for the first time in Winnipeg, which I don't think that's true. I think he said that in literally every town he went to. This is the first time we're playing this song, <laughs> and everyone just goes crazy. Yeah, right. Like, oh, we're so special. Yeah. <laughs> there was no YouTube to check that. Right? <laughs> no, yeah. It's like you're full of it. Man. Yeah, it's funny too. You think about that because back then, like we would try and sneak cameras in to take pictures of bands. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, and that was such a big no-no. Right. And now it's like everybody's got their phone. It's weird. Like, I don't go to as many concerts, but whenever I yeah. go to one that's, you know, big enough or 
you know, I, I went to see, um, uh, Le Sins, you know, Tori Imwa, like he did like a DJ set thing at Art Basel in Miami. Like okay. he wasn't at the art fair, but it was just timed. Yeah. And it, the show, first of all, the show I think started like one thirty AM, which wow. was brutal. Yeah. It was like drinking Red Bulls just to stay conscious for it. <laughs> and then we he played, you know, on a carpet in the middle of this small bar, wow. you know, and a lot of people there. So as soon as he started, everyone comes up and yeah. there's no stage yeah. and everyone's got the phone, the phone out, out. Yeah. with the light. Yeah. And they're like, we look like lightning bugs, you know, yeah. Yeah. and you can't see what's going, you can't yeah. see anything. I'm like, it never sounds good on a phone when you record that stuff. You know, it just maxes out the speaker. You know what I mean? And but I, I think people just do it. I don't know why. You know, out of habit. I, I I love um, my family. I'm going to try and <laughs> say this. In What's nice coming way. after that? <laughs> but I'm thinking to myself, okay, everybody's over for some sort of family function. Everyone's out in the yard. The kids are doing some stupid shit that everyone wants to take a picture of. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, put the camera down and live in the moment. Yeah. You know? And I think to myself, you go to this concert, so what are you going to do? Go home and watch it over and over again? No one does. Nobody does. It just ends up on your computer in the cloud or whatever it ends up on. And like you're not experiencing it in real life. Right. Because you're busy taking a video of it, but you're in front of it. So I think people just do it because they just want to post it up so they could be like, look, people, I went went to see this cool thing. It's, It's kind of like a. Right. You know, we used to collect like uh, patches or buttons or something. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. go to a gig and you get like the t-shirt or something. T-shirt. This is like the new version. Of the t-shirt. It's free. You're just like, right. look, everyone, I was there. But like, then everybody the, was there. So I know. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I don't understand it. Yeah. I don't really get it either. It's I, I you, you kind of, especially something like live music. Yeah. Like you feel it. You, you know? want to feel it. I mean, I want to. They make records. To. Yeah. And it's not like it's ever... I mean, there's some shows where it's really visual, but right. usually it's kind of just, you know, a performance and it's, yeah. it's just uh, the experience that you would think. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I went to see Flying Lotus play. Do you know him? Uh-uh. He's, uh, he does this like 4D laser. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's trippy, you know, but you know, and if people are trying to capture it. You can't, it's, it's right. 4D. Right. Like it's lasers moving through space, creating shapes. You can't get it on yeah. a phone, you know, yeah. like you just have to like sit back and enjoy it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think it's a habit thing. It is probably. Well, also the, you know, I think the idea of wanting to let people know that you were there. Yeah, definitely. Important. Well, I'm excited, especially too, for some of the students that listen to this too, who are constantly on their phones at their computers to make their work, because I feel like you're, going to the studio and you're making your things yeah i mean is that presumptuous to say that you're not sitting there looking at google to make your next image no definitely not <laughs> um that's the funny thing too is that i feel like you know we went to hauser and worth had a show of calder uh, in the la space mm-hmm. and i'd been to a bunch of shows that day and saw all these little all of these different things and ended up walking into that show and right in the entrance, like I think you walked in about 10 feet in a little tiny pedestal with a little tiny, whatever, glass cover on it. There's this little sculpture that he made. And all of a sudden I was just like, like I wasn't going to start crying, but it was like to see that, to see the imperfections in it, the scale of it, everything about that thing 
was so beautiful that you could never, in my opinion, you could never reproduce that. Yeah. You know, and when I think about making stuff and how, if I'm lucky, people will walk into this thing and look at it and get that same feeling, not necessarily like, but of some sort of visceral reaction. Definitely. To it, I was just going to say that word, like your work is so visceral. There's, I don't think there's any separation from like the hand and like this is right. You can just see you making it. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, Not your 20 assistants. I don't have any assistants. That's what, so. I, you know, that's the joke is like, you know what I mean? Like you, it's you. Yeah. You know, and it's, it feels like the work looks like you sitting in a room might be messy. Yeah. I'm just saying maybe pretty, not, pretty but, messy. and you're just making things, you know, yeah. seeing how it goes. That's it. It's, and it's, it's funny because I feel like some people I'm sure would look at the work and be like, Oh, well this is like, you know, the whole like lo-fi, like, is this really like, is this thrown together or something? You know right. what I mean? Like, what is this? I'm like people outside sure. who know art are just sure. like, what is this stuff? You know right, what I mean? Right, right. But it just, to me, it just seems like the most earnest stuff. Well, thank you. You know? Thank and, you. uh, and I think that's refreshing because nowadays, well, I don't want to say nowadays. <laughs> nowadays. I, I'm going to edit that out. Okay, edit that out. <laughs> it's, it's like, when I was a kid. When I was a boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. It's happening. But, yeah, I, I think that's the really refreshing thing about it. So well, that's awesome. And how long has it been since you've had the, a show in New York? Um, like, I did a... It's uh, been a little while, right? It's been a, quite a while. Um, there was a three-person, sort of each-person solo show yeah. in 2015 with Jorge Pardo and Dirk Scraber mm-hmm. in this space, but I haven't done a show in this space, so this is the first one. Nice. Um, yeah, very nice. And it opens? Tomorrow, Thursday. Tomorrow. The 9th of January. I think I might be able to get this out tomorrow. Awesome. That way people can just come to the opening. Yeah. Give you the business about all this dad stuff you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, listen, keep the dad off the podcast. Right, I know, the dad cast. You need to be cool. Maybe we can do an offshoot. Sure. The dad cast. The dad cast, yeah. Yeah. We just interview other artists who are dads. Who are dads, yeah. Yeah. Talk about how their kids don't like to go to the studio and yeah. give a shit whether their dad's an artist or not. <laughs> yeah. So what? What age? You know, at what age do your kids stop inadvertently kicking you in the nuts? You know, <laughs> the one thing that I never understood is how my kids had such incredible accuracy uh-huh. with unintentional kicks to the nuts. It's not just you, buddy, because you've seen America's Funniest Home Videos. Oh, I, mean, I know. Those, it, it's, there's a treasure trove of, like, yeah. dads getting hit and junk. That's that dad cast. <laughs> at, a certain, at a certain age, I guess, it just accidentally falls away, but there's right. a sweet spot there. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's never not funny. Oh, it's always funny. <laughs> and it's the horrible thing is watching old people get hurt and kids get hurt is always funny to me, too. It's always funny. Yeah, I'm, ter- I'm a terrible person. No, I, there's something about it. Yeah. Well, um, so all the information, the opening is going to be tomorrow, yeah. which is Thursday, January 9th. 9th. Yeah. At Petzl on, we're on 17th? 18th. 18th, yeah. 456 18th Street. Four five six Eighteenth Street, and then to see your work otherwise, anywhere else you're showing, where your work is, do you do social media? You do. I'm right? on. I'm on Instagram, but I've not been. You know, when they switched it from being a chronological thing to whatever thing they got going on yeah, now, the, agri- the algorithm, of, like you know, it's I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I enjoy it as much. Plus, I don't know. I'm not good at that. I should be good at it, but I'm not. Nah. 
you know yeah. I post things and I'm like that's dumb why did I even do that why does anybody care what I do like that way you know like do they really need to know that stuff I mean maybe people do want to know but on one hand I'm like I'm just not good at this yeah it's kind of a time suck too yeah. and then it's just like it's look what I'm suck. doing look what I'm doing look what I'm right. doing and yeah so, I mean, it's, there's good and bad, I guess. I mean, I've met people in doing the podcast, too. I've sent people messages sure. through that, which yeah, makes yeah. things easier at times. And, Absolutely. you know, I've been introduced to people like people will tag me and say, check out this artist. And I've some of the coolest conversations or oh, work that good. I've seen. So, you know, <clears throat> to everything, there's an up and down. Right. But people should come see it in the yes. flat. It definitely be better if you did that. There is some work that. Like in those galleries that have mirrors or that are flat or whatever, they look great in a two inch by two inch square. But yeah. I think they have to come see your work in person. Probably, probably be a good idea. Yeah. And yeah. then when's the next? Uh, when's the next Kiss cover band venue? Uh, I don't know. We, yeah, I don't know. We were going to try and do a gig in April, but that's not going to happen. So you guys didn't play the opening here. No. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Yeah. No. Roll no. in the Marshall stacks. Yeah. Blow the roof off. Other roof off. Um, <laughs> no, at some point we'll play again, but I don't yeah. know when. Cool. Yeah. Well, man, it was, I can't believe it's been that long since yeah. I've seen you. I know it's amazing. Figure we'd bump it. Well, you know how it goes. You but know. it was. I'm glad we we got the chance to. Yeah, no, I appreciate the talk and uh, good. good luck with the show. It looks great. And, Thank you. And hang out soon. Okay. Cool. Right, <laughs> Many thanks to John. Go check out his show at Petzl Gallery. It's up for a while. Uh, many thanks to Evan Marion for the music that you're hearing now, intro and outro music. Thanks to Michael Lovett for the introduction. Thank you to the New York Studio School for their sponsorship and to Golden Paints for their sponsorship of the podcast. Remember, you can now support Sound and Vision if you would like on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. You can go, um, there's three different tiers. You could do a 5 a 10 or a $25 donation. And you can get your name uh, read out on a podcast just like this coming soon. And you could also get something sent to you. Otherwise, you can just um, leave a review on iTunes and um, rate it, review it, or you can also just share it with a friend, post about it, spread the word. Anything you can do helps. Um, it's recorded, produced, and edited all by me. I do it all. And uh, any support that I get from you is definitely very helpful, whether that's you know donating or just listening. It's all support. Many thanks, and I will see you next week. All right. It's time to stop recording and get back to painting in here.